0: Welcome to our podcast, Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. Today, we are continuing our mini series on racism in Canada. We want to dive deep into how racism affects our lives from a multidimensional lens. For this episode, we we will be looking at racism in sports. This theme is all the more topical today, as we just recently heard about two well-documented incidences of racism in hockey. Two black players on two separate occasions were taunted with racist words and actions. Sadly, these we know are not isolated incidences. Players who are black, indigenous, or people of color have faced racism in all sports, from hockey to swimming, to soccer, to gymnastics. Players, teams, and leagues have called us out and have raised their voice saying, stop, enough is enough. But it still continues to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Senator. Uh, you know, it's really troubling and saddening to hear these stories, but, you know, realistically and unfortunately, they're not uncommon. Uh, a former colleague of ours coached minor hockey for many years in Indigenous communities, and they would travel to games and tournaments. And be racially abused by the players and spectators who are often the parents of the kids uh, of the opposing teams. Officials on the ice wouldn't do anything, you know, and the league wouldn't do anything. So they just basically had to deal with this on a game-by-game basis. And there's even a recent story in PEI where there was a black teen that complained about on social media about uh, local hockey association not doing enough to deal with racist abuse that he is, you know, he was suffering. But guess who got suspended? The player got suspended for breaking the social media rules. So, you know, this is something that everyone is, you know, having to deal with, but nothing seems to be changing the attitudes of everyone. So we're going to look into this, delve into it, look at this in the multifaceted way that it is. So let's get to the interview.
0: Welcome. Today we are going to continue our mini-series on racism, and we're going to focus on sport. And to help us peel this onion with many layers, we are speaking with Rosie Ade. Rosie is a three-time Olympian, Commonwealth Games medalist, and a member of the Quebec Sport Hall of Fame, who has spent the last decade as a TV personality. We're also joined by Dr. Shima Khan, who is a columnist for the Globe and Mail newspaper and the author of the book, Hockey and Hijab, Reflections of a Canadian Muslim Woman. Both are seasoned professionals and they will help us move this needle on this particularly troublesome and wicked problem. So I'm very tempted to start off with the first question on The recent happenings that we all know about uh, about the racist incidents and taunts um, focused on two black players, but I'm going to stay true to my script and and help the audience get to understand Rosie and Shima's pathway a little better. So my first question is, what drove you to be in sports, either as an athlete, uh, Rosie, or you Shima as a writer thinking? and writing about sports? What was the motivational factor here?
2: You wanna go first? Go ahead, Rosie. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So for me, and first of all, just um, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. What a dynamic discussion this, I know it's going to be. And unfortunately it's very timely. Here we are, 2022 talking about racism in sport and oh yeah there's a lot to unpack here you would think by 2022 we're like what huh what do you mean but no it's the exact opposite it's still loaded and there's so much to discuss and yeah we're talking about athletes who are in their 20s who have to deal with racism you would have thought by in 2022 that you know an athlete who was you know, growing up in the 90s and the and the uh-ohs would be like, what do you mean? That's that's an old timey thing. It's not. And it's unfortunate. Sport is a place um, that is, it's supposed to be a safe space. It's supposed to be a place that unifies. And uh, you're talking about teams. You're talking about giving it your 100% effort. And, and sportsmanlike conduct means that People come together in a spirit of, of 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 good competition, great spirits, and that's usually what happens. You you give it your all, blood, sweat, and tears, years of training, so that you can see how far you can push yourself. That's what sports all about. But unfortunately, the um, the ugly head of racism continues to rear its head. I got into sport because my mother said, "Find something to do after school. Stay out of trouble." So. Um, <laughs> I couldn't make the basketball team. I tried in high school, and I was just wasn't good enough. Track is a sport um, that welcomes everyone. There, you know, track and field covers running, jumping, throwing, um, you know, so there's power, there's speed, there's strength, there's endurance. Um, so I got into that because you didn't really have to try out. You just had to show up and <laughs> show up to practice, and so you're on the team. Um, so, yeah, I got into sport because of that uh, camaraderie. And, uh, yep, my mom said do something after school. And so I found track.
0: Oh, wise mom. Now, Shima, you've, you come at this differently. You know, you're, right. I think, a hockey mom. I think a hockey player. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> so tell us about hijab and hockey and how you came to this. Right.
3: Well, um, you know, I, I started wearing hijab at, I think, at the age of about 26 or 27. But before that, um, I mean, I was active after and before. But I got into sports, uh, you know, we came to Montreal from India when I was about four. And right away, my parents put me into ski lessons. And I hated them <laughs> because <laughs> I, would, I wasn't good at it. But I I was good at other sports. And so, you know, I and, and at that time, we didn't have the, you know, community leagues that you have now. Right. Um, but I got into into tennis. Um, I actually was started training with the Quebec tennis team at one point. Uh, I I played on practically every single high school team, um, except for gymnastics, which I was lousy at. And in fact, when I graduated, I was I was a female high school athlete <laughs> of my my class. And then soccer and, and I got my I got accredited I credit the Canadian Soccer Association. And I always felt welcome, included in whatever sports I played. It was a team aspect that Rosie spoke about and it was fun and I really liked it. Um, as time went on, I, I grew more serious about school because um, I had to make a decision in terms of time commitment. But recreationally, I played tennis, I played soccer, uh, a little bit of hockey on the side. Uh, w- when I went to Harvard for grad school, they had no intramural hockey for women. Mm. so A teetotaling <laughs> connect started intramural women's hockey at Harvard. I mean, I just found things very well welcoming and people, you know, really pursuing in, in, in the best of spirits. I didn't get to a competitive level as, as Rosie did. So I've seen the fun side of sports, right? And then later on, yeah, I became a hockey mom, a soccer mom and um, parents have been great. And, and maybe because I've sort of kept away from the nitty gritty, <laughs> I haven't really examined or been subject to the ugliness that I know exists, right? So that's where I come from. And, and now I'm an observer, I'm a fan, and, and like everyone else, I was just appalled to read about what happened in, in the AHL and the East Coast Hockey League. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, Rosie touched on it briefly, but, you know, because I was thinking, you know, when, when Obama was elected, I think we all thought, you know what? New era. But I think that just set off a backlash yeah. um, that simmered and just exploded with Trump. And, and, you know, people believe they have the license now. To spew, uh, you know, to spew things uh, whether it's speech or through action that I think wasn't acceptable eight ten years ago, but now.
0: So so let's let's dive into the hot topic of the day. Uh, I know that racism exists in in almost every slice and dice of our life, uh, but. I have also observed that there is that there are significant numbers of players, whether they're in hockey or basketball or football or or soccer. Definitely, where there's you know, the, the, it it does look like the world is represented there. The world is playing in this field, and so I was frankly, you know, I'm, maybe I'm naive, but I was shocked. At the very open expression of racism experienced by the two Black Payers players on two different ice hockey fields and on two different occasions. Were you shocked?
3: Well, you know, um, I was kind of surprised that these were players who were doing it in such open fashion because in the past it's been fans. Right. Uh, you know, in Quebec, I forget the name of the young player in, in, in Quebec where, I mean, he was just subject to horrible taunts while he was in the penalty box and his family was, you know, had to be escorted out. Or you could have cases of, you know, fans throwing banana peels uh, onto the ice or it, it's usually like fans. Um, for me, this is the first time I've actually heard of players <laughs> on the ice openly taunting with racist overt racist acts like that, that I think is a different level. Um, That's the first time I've sort of seen it at that, you know, player on player.
2: Rosie, were you shocked? Um, No, I I, am not shocked. Um, But as to what Shima just said, it, it it is to note that it was an athlete who made that taunting gesture. But, um... Bernie Sanders, uh, Bernie Saunders, uh, a former NHLer, played for the Quebec Nordiques. He uh, played in the 80s. He wrote a book called "Shutout: The Game That Did Not Love Me Back." He's a black player, and on I think it's the first page, maybe the second page, he writes about being taunted on the ice. The same way in which uh, Jordan Subban was taunted on the ice just the other day, what 20, 30 years ago, it happened to him. He was taunted by another player, um, and 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 he and he talked about his love of hockey, but how players, coaches, um, um, folks in the in you know in the stands. All taunted him and uh, threw out r- racial epithets, and he had to deal with that throughout throughout his entire career, and it and it was so difficult and disappointing and disheartening, and 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 um, and it diminished his 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 sense of self and even his mo- emotional state. He left the sport and went into the corporate world. Oh, wow! But um, so so, n- what can I say? It's it's. It's a very, it's, it's sad, but no, it's not surprising. I mean, he wrote about this. Bernie Saunders wrote about this in his book. And, he, and then the first or second page, he writes about being taunted with these, you know, these awful gestures on the ice by another player. And not just by an opponent who's trying to get at him and maybe get into his head so they can win. But he, he talks about players on his own team not coming to his defense. In fact, taunting him in the locker room. So, um I'm I'm disappointed. I'm very disappointed and I know that uh the individual who made those gestures recently said that's not what he meant and so I know that he has been um since removed from uh the team and uh I'm not going to mention his name. I'll just talk about Jordan Suben, who's the younger brother of PK Suben incredible uh, hockey yeah. player, you know. Um, and uh, I loved how PK and his whole family and, and so many thousands and thousands of people came to Jordan's uh, side and backed him up. And I think that that's what we need to do. We need to show that there is no room for that. I don't know what this person meant to do with those gestures, but I know that um, Jordan jumped on that right away and took it as a racial taunt and he settled it on the ice. And um, now it, it needs to be known. <laughs> Here we are, 2022. Can you imagine, Senator, <laughs> that we're talking about? We need to let people know that that's not acceptable. Really? <laughs> but okay, we do. <laughs>
0: okay, so I actually get that, but it has to be more than words. And so I get yeah. to systemic yeah. solutions. Yeah. You know, I'm surprised that the leagues themselves and the management, and Shima, maybe you'd comment on this, that the management has not developed rules of conduct, clearly articulated penalties, uh, both for players and fans, because this is, you know, intolerable, What is what, what Rosie has described. Do you know of any sport that has actually taken this to heart and say, this is what we will do in the team, with the fans on the field, if racism is expressed one way or the other, uh, and and you know there's there always a question, you know what was the intent behind it, and so you have to have procedures around that. But I know that in uh, in many parts of the business world, there are clearly articulated uh, codes of conduct, and there are penalties. Now whether these are followed or not, I don't know. Uh, But I'm asking you, Shima, I mean, this, if this is a systemic problem, we need a systemic solution. So what should, what is the systemic solution?
3: Well, what I find, I mean, I don't follow, I follow sports as as a fan and I don't sort of follow the management level, but I find a lot of, a lot of it is reactive, right? So this is what you saw with what happened in in these minor hockey leagues in the the uh, ECHL. they, you know, the, the player was let go, the statements came out from management, and, and the same thing that happened in Quebec about three years ago, you know. It's always reactive, you know. Um, and maybe that's just hockey. I mean, hockey is, I think of all the sports that I follow, I think hockey is probably, you know, whether it's baseball, basketball, football, I think hockey is <laughs> the farthest behind. To be honest um and you can see that in the in the in the makeup of the player right in, in the makeup of, of of you know management players whatever it's predominantly a white sport right um it's changing slowly but that's the reality and i think i would hope the nhl could learn perhaps from more maybe the nba you know i find perhaps of all the professional sports they, i think the nba is probably the most. "Quote progressive, if if that's a, a word, you know, lack for a better term. Could it do better? For sure. I think these these sports needs have to learn from the best of corporate culture. Um, I think you know import best practices from from you know other places, um, such as corporate you know corporations which do emphasize. Uh, they don't just say it; they mean it. You know, and you can mm-hmm. see it in in their work mm-hmm. culture, in their corporate culture. And so uh, there has to be willingness too. Um, when I look at the NHL, I see Gary Bettman and I have, I'll be frank, I have like no hope in this, in him. I mean, he's there to make money for the owners and that's his main you know, main thing. And if it means damage control to keep the, you know, but it's not, really, he's not really interested in, in a cultural change of the league. So uh, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic. <laughs> and I think if there is one place where there will be pressure, it'll be from the fans if they insist on it though. Ah,
0: okay. The customer is king.
3: Yes. Always. Okay. But they don't realize, I don't think fans realize that we are. So.
1: Yeah. Rose, I'm curious, do you have any, you know, sort of solution, systemic solutions that you can think uh, would be there and, um, you know, on this, the sort of more professional leagues as well? And and after you maybe jump in there, I, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about minor, you know, minor leagues that are like, kids growing up in the leagues and the things that they face in hockey and other and other sports so uh if you have any thoughts on any breaking down the systemic barriers as well
2: yeah um it's um it would be a huge task there's no doubt about it and um like shima says uh what do the fans want um and what are the fans looking for and and um and then on top of that The owners, if we're talking about pro sport, um, need to to include those who may not look like them into their fold for uh, whether it's consultation, whether it's diversity training. Um, I don't think that it should be left upon those uh, uh, black, brown and um, people of color to teach or to solely teach. Uh, white players, if you will, white owners, if you will, about um, the downside of racism and systemic racism. I think that you have to engage um, uh, white folk in that conversation as well. But it, it, it will go back and it's going to take a while, but you got to go back to uh, the, uh, the Pee Wee uh, League. You've got to go way back to um, the, the young kids growing up in the league, because when you think about this incident that happened in, um, the, the, the two hockey incidents in the minor hockey league, these, these are not 40 year old players. They're in their (laughs) twenties. And, um, so they're quite young and yet, um, there is obviously some, uh, cognitive dissonance. There's some, there's some cut with, uh, with, uh, there's there's a distance here between one player and another between what's acceptable, what isn't, what's what is considered offensive and what isn't. There's there's obviously people out there who go well, I well I I didn't really that's not what I meant to do and I'm not of that. But yet another player took it like that. So obviously there's some there's some issues that need to be addressed and and you're going to have to start really young. And um, to Shima's point, you know a lot of the big time owners may not be really interested in starting that early, but um, but you know money can go a long way and you can forward some of that money to some of the minor leagues and the younger leagues and and uh, and it's about uh, teaching and about training and about talking and discussing and open discourse really does um, help but you need um, uh, white folks to talk about uh, the negative impact of racism too they need to be a part of the conversation it can't you can't just be talking to, um, white people saying, this is not nice. This hurt my feelings. And it's like, mm, okay, because then it becomes othered. And then um, many people who are, you know, um, you know, um, manifesting those racist, racist taunts think, well, it's race is something other. It's not of me. It's, you know, it pertains to black people, people of color. And no, it, it, we're all, again, this is sport, so we're all in there. We're all on the ice, so we're all in this together. You offend me, then you offend everybody. That's what has to be taught.
1: And I, I'm, I'm curious about that because, you know, I, I coach hockey, uh, I coach my son's team, I'm a part of a, 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 an organization called Hockey Without Borders, um, and so, I, you know, I, and I know lots of hockey people and, and different things like that. You know, what saddens me, however, is there's plenty of stories, uh, not only of professional leagues, but of minor hockey leagues. These are, you know, teenagers or younger of of racist taunts that are happening. Uh, you know, a colleague that worked with the senator and I. He he he's worked in indigenous communities, coaching hockey there, and everywhere they would go around uh, playing in in sport tournament and tournaments and games, they would have racist taunts not only by the. Uh, fans which actually are the parents of the players but also by the players and and there was you know a recent incident in in PI where a black player was suspended for complaining on spo- social media that the that the incident uh, that he, the abuse that he had faced uh you know was 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 not dealt with appropriately and he was suspended for breaking their social policy uh you know the guidelines so so i'm just wondering you know i think you know hockey maybe hopefully is a bit of an outlier but this does you know exist in 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 other sports and in soccer in particular where you know they close stadiums to fans because there's racist taunts to the players and 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 they're actually taking the knee all the time you know in, in the English Premier League because of you know trying to show solidarity against racism so how is it can we build those those you know systems and programs in the in that young age that we can really deal with these issues before they become professional players and before it becomes the spotlight you know that we've seen in the last two days shima do you have a comment and then maybe yeah Rosie out well first.
3: i think i think you you touched on something important the parents right you can have the best training sessions for the kids i think the same thing has same thing has to be given to the parents because you know kids are going to look up to the adults around them and if they see the adults around them yelling profanities and epith- you know, uh, horrible horrible words um they're gonna they're gonna take that as a license that it's okay so i agree these programs yes let's have programs of diversity and inclusion for for the young folk you also have to give to the parents of these players i think if anything they need it more than the young ones i i I'm, i don't know what happens to parents once they get inside that hockey rink or you know they come to that soccer field or you know i, I it's like a switch, something, something happens, and that has to be dealt with more than anything. I find, I mean, as a soccer mom, um, more than a hockey mom, like you know, I just I felt like we've got to have programs for parents, just to, you know, just, I mean, not not just about racism, but like you know, you're not you know, you're not living vicariously through your kid. Like it's just something that happens to parents, not all of them, but enough to make to make it ugly.
2: Yeah, I would I would have to echo what Shima's saying, um, you really have to um, you have to start with the parents and and um, there has to be, although I, I know that people's eyes will glaze over, but there has to be uh, in order for your child to enter this league, parents have to take X amount of hours of this training. It's a training mm-hmm. module. It's available on computer. you have to you know, maybe you don't have to be in a sit in a classroom, but you got to upload it. And then we got to make sure that you've uh, taken X amount of hours of these uh, classes. And if you don't, then your child can't play. And then it has to be this um, um, a very comprehensive course. And it sounds kind of nuts, right? What do you mean? You have to take a course on how, on to learn that you know these words are not acceptable, and this gesture is very, very racist and offensive to people. But believe it or not, and it, it, the evidence is there. It is, it, it, it is necessary, and all parents need to take it. All parents need to take it in order for the kids to participate, and then the kids need to, um, need to get have the talk. You've probably heard about. Black parents who give their young boys the talk when they hit a certain age. It's like, oh boy, okay, you're not cute anymore. You're turning into a man. So now we have to sit down and have the talk about why you can't just um, play cops and robbers with your friends with a toy gun. Can't do that because you could, um, that gun, that toy gun could be um, seen as an actual weapon in the eyes of certain authority figures. And because even though you're only 12, but some may think that you're 18 because um, that's just how you are construed in, um, in society in general. So we have that talk with our boys. So we have to have that talk with all kids. We have to have the talk about, you know what? Racism is a very, very insipid thing. It's horrendous for the entire society. We all fail. We all lose when somebody commits a racist act. Really? Yeah. Even me, even you. And it has to be taught. At a very young age. And I think that that's where um, there's a problem with uh, the, the parents because they do sort of a little bit of Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when they get on the rink and or they're watching their kids play. But the kids need to be informed. And um, if, a, if, a, if a four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old Black boy has to have that talk and has to learn about the harsh realities of the way in which he's seen in society, then a four, five, six-year-old, all other kids need to have that talk about the harshness of racism, and 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 just say we don't do that here. We are a family. We are a, we are a society. We reject it, all of us. And then and then I think that you'll start to develop these individuals who are um, who are more aware, empathetic, and they can still be fierce competitors and incredible athletes, but just not um, with race, racist tendencies. Um. So I, want to, I have two questions,
0: uh, both I, as you were talking, Rosie, they occurred to me. We've talked a lot about uh, the sports where men and young boys are dominant, hockey, basketball. I want to talk about girls. And my question is to Shima, because she did write hockey and hijab, and I imagine little girls in hijab playing hockey, which I think is a wonderful picture. <laughs> Do you think racism in sport exists differently in female leagues whether they are junior leagues or or the opposite i'm i'm really not a sport uh, uh, expert so i don't even have the language but i know there are junior and senior leagues or or is this expressed more harshly in those sports where a certain amount of violence seems to be not simply tolerated but actively sort of part of the of the of the context
3: well um i i'm sure have you seen have you seen the film bend it like beckham do you remember that film yeah, yeah. love that so, movie isn't that great so um, i forget the the name of, of, the, of the heroine but um you know in the film it shows her experiencing racist taunts on the field by other players right and so, that exists, I mean, people are people, male or female. Uh, there are racist tendencies amongst women, just as are amongst men. It, it, maybe it's expressed differently, I don't know, but it still hurts nonetheless, right? It still hurts, and sometimes in sports, the intent is to hurt, is to rile up your opponent, is to, you know, it, it's competition, any advantage you can get. So. Um, I would say, I mean, again, I'm not in, involved in sports to the extent that Rosie is, so she could probably speak to it much better. I was just reading before this podcast, I was reading about Ibtihaj Muhammad, the fencer for the U.S. Uh, Olympic team, who, who was the first one to compete wearing her hijab. And in her, um, you know, she, she won a medal for, the, you know, as being, uh, as part of the team. But in her, in her memoir, she writes about, you know, what she endured. But, you know the taunts, the racism, like going, you know, training as a fencer, going up all the way through, through college, to the profession, even, even amongst your teammates. So it, it's there, regardless. I think if you're female or male, but I think okay. Rosie can probably speak more, more to that as well. Yeah.
0: Uh, so Rosie, mm-hmm. just throw in another question so sure. you can package them all. Together, let's stay with girls, but also let's stay. Let's talk about team sports v- versus uh sports where you know, like you're a track champion, so you run by yourself, uh, and I'm sure uh, there are team elements, but it's not quite like playing in a hockey league or a basketball league. So, would you comment on those? One, you know, is this a male-dominated expression or? or not, and what about
2: team versus individual? Sure. Um, Well, I I don't want to get too, too long on this answer, but I've got a lot of examples. I'll just give you my personal example. Uh, Growing up in Montreal, uh, running track, the only indoor track available to us to train on was Clos out So that's where I okay. trained inside in the winter time. And the way that it's set up is you need a card, a membership card, in order to enter. And uh, so I would enter, I would train in the States when I come back and visit my family, I would train at Clos Royaude. I'd always have my card handy. Um, you'd go in, there are two entrances. Uh, many times the entrances are supposed to be um, they're supposed to be a somebody there to check your card but many times you go in there's no one there I don't know maybe they're on a smoke break I have no idea so I would just walk in and I'd have my card in hand but there's nobody there so you just walk into the track and I'd start my warm-up well inevitably somebody they they would come back and sit down at their desk and then just kind of survey the track and go uh, uh. I didn't see her there before and literally run up to me and I'm not training. It's not like I'm training and I'm running super fast. So they, whoa, there's that fast girl. Let me just check her out. I was just jogging. I would be stopped inevitably every single time I would go start my little warm up by myself because I'm the only black girl. So it's easy to notice. Oh, wait a minute. And I would always be stopped midway through my warm up and have to go back, find my card to present to this uh, gentleman to prove that I can train here as a Canadian record holder, by the way. Um, And many times people would come in after me, white people would come in after me and they'd never stop them. They never stopped the other people who came in after me who also didn't show their card because the person wasn't at the desk. So this is that kind of uh, systemic racism that we're talking about. It's that otherness that they make you feel. It's, it diminishes you. It it uh, excludes you. It humiliates you. And this has nothing to do with, you know, track and field, the governing body of track and field itself. It has to do with, um, you know, the individual going, hey, I, oh, I didn't see her. I need to check her card but never having that same instinct when, you know, never looking and surveying for somebody who looks like them that they did not check the card. So, and, and to them, they're like, I'm just doing my job. To me, I know I'm being singled out. So that's one thing, okay. Um, another thing, and this is very recent. So we're talking um, late last year. You probably remember this in Tokyo, the Olympic Games. The World um, Governing Body for Swimming they um, they prohibited um, these natural these uh, swim wow. caps for uh, for women with natural thick uh, hair. Now, in 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 the in the well, it's not just in the black community. The way that they grade hairs, it's one two three four and so four and four c is very thick curly hair mine's like about a four b and it's throughout the um the beauty industry there's these grades of hair and when you have four c hair four b hair it's very thick we don't have straight hair our hair is naturally curly and so to fit it all in a cap a regular cap can't (laughs) You'd rip half your hair out trying to get it into a regular cap. Wow. So these individuals created these incredible swim caps that are bigger, that can that can house all that thick hair, so you don't have to cut it all off to go swimming. And the governing body said they they prohibited, they prohibited the use of the caps, and they said, and I quote, that the caps do not, quote, follow the natural form of the head. So that's saying that those with hair like mine have an unnaturally shaped head. That's how I take it. And that is actual fact. Go ahead and take a, take a look, Tokyo Olympic Games. Now another, another example, Australian, uh, basketball Australia. For a moment, they prohibited braids in the league. And they said, cause loose braids could whip around and injure a player. And so they said, no, you are only allowed to wear braids if they are tied up or worn in a bun. Now, if that isn't trying to control the body and the individual, I don't know what is. And uh, as far as I know, there's no um, there's no regulation for people with straight hair. They are not regulated and, and told that they must tie their hair up in a bun. They can wear a ponytail and let the ponytail whip around. But if you had braids, <laughs> they said no. But anyhow, um, Tiffany... <laughs> Tiffany Mitchell, she cried foul. She was, uh, she's on uh, one of the Australian, she's on the Australian Melbourne Boomer. She cried foul. So a a few weeks later, they went, okay, 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 you can have braids. But it's like, it's like singling out braids, which is um, a way, a form of, a way in which mostly mainly black women black girls, wear their yeah. hair and have done so. It's not like it's just a fad. We just last week said, oh, we want to wear braids. It's, it's a cultural, uh, it's a part of our cultural identity. It's a way in which that we keep our hair. And uh, the uh, Basketball Australia at one point said, nope, you can't wear braids. And if you do wear braids, you have to tie it up and you have to wear it this way because we said so. <laughs> anyway, those are examples, team sports and then individual sports. So, and yeah. you know what, you know what would help? if you had a bit more diversity on their governing boards, i bet you a million dollars. If you had a black person on the governing board, they'd be like, oh, wait, oh, wait, wait a minute. (laughs) What are you you saying? What are you saying? And then they would help them see things from a different perspective. I'm not saying that they're terrible and that they are racist to the core and they want to eliminate those who do not look like them, but it shows the ignorance. The ignorance is just it's like colossal and i think if you had some people who, for, who are from a bit of a different background it can add um it could have a add a different perspective so those are the kind of things that you know that will that could discourage a young black girl who goes oh the only way i could wear my hair you know playing basketball and sweating i need braids and then you hear oh australian basketball said no braids what oh okay i don't know Right, and where we want women to, we want women to participate in sport. The dropout rate for girls in sport, by the time they reach high school, it's like fifty percent. They're like, forget it, sport. We should be doing everything that we can. We, meaning governing bodies of sport, sport associations, we should be doing everything in our power to encourage girls to stay and to get involved in sport. And by telling them that no, this. Um, This swim cap does not follow the natural curvature of your head. So you can't wear that. So that means you got to cut your hair off or you can't wear braids. Yes, they turned around and changed it. But it shows you this is I just wanted to give you examples of that exclusion of that otherness of how it diminishes and and can humiliate those who don't look like the the dominant culture.
0: So those are very pertinent examples. And I'm going to turn to Shima about hijab and Mm. sports. What do you know about how? Is it accepted uh, or are there were there rules against the hijab in hockey and other sports? Uh, You know, I I kind of think as as a Canadian that that must be
3: old history, but I'm not (laughs) sure now, you know, but after hearing this, I'm not sure. You tell me. Well, I mean, the flash point hijab in sports has has been, not surprisingly, Quebec. So, right, so you had, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, a um, tournament out in the West Island. It's a team from Nipin here in Ottawa, a girls team. Uh, they had a match and, the, you know, they played a couple of games and then um, One of the games, the referee says, you know, they had a player who wore the hijab and he said, he said to her, you you can't play with that on the field. It's against FIFA rules. And and like, what? And they said, no, no, you can't. So instead of her staying off the field, the team, her teammates said, well, if she doesn't play, we don't play. play, And the parents supported that if she doesn't play, we're not, you know, we're not. And they left. They left the tournament and, you know, uh, like that to me is so powerful, right? That is, and then a couple yeah. years later, I know we're talking about a hijab, but the same thing happened with a young Sikh boy was wearing a turban and same thing, you know, and, and until FIFA came out and clarified and said, look, it's as long as it, you know, satisfied certain safety conditions, of course, it's fine. So in Canada, uh, you know, when you talk about hijab, um, it's been on the soccer field uh, and it's been in Quebec. I don't know. I played. I played in the women's league for like 10 years, right? And never any problem, never any issues. Um, You know, at the end of the game, my my teammates had a beer and I had Dr. Pepper because that's what I like. (laughs) So um, uh, it's happened a couple of times that I know of. Um, Hockey's um, great because you just put... the helmet over your hijab is no issue uh, but other sports um, I don't think I've come across that uh, as much
0: okay. so, um, so
3: there are points of light
0: I mean you know I am yeah. always I'm look I love the story about the team walking off you know yeah. I love that uh, yeah. because you know yeah. that tells you the power of team and the, and yeah. the power of many over the power of one uh, exactly. so here's my next question and it's about Colin Kaepernick Am I pronouncing his name right? And his taking the knee. And, and, you know, he paid a heavy penalty for that and still continues to pay, pay that penalty. And many people have said that what did that get anyone? It was a performative gesture. I,
3: I, you know, tell me what you think about that. Hmm. Well, I thought it was incredibly brave. Um, and if anything, it was it was not performative. I mean it set off a movement. it, it, uh, it set off a movement it um, brought awareness to a situation that many did not know about and and his actions have been followed. He, you know it's not like they've disappeared as much as Trump <laughs> tried to like, I, you know people it it resonated what he did resonated and it resonates to this day um and it's spread to other sports um you see it across the pond uh, with the british premier uh, english premier league that paul mentioned uh players taking the knees so it was a very powerful courageous gesture uh nike supported him you know uh i mean we talked about uh pushback right against right uh, the sponsors play and an an incredible role because that's where the money is, you know. You talk about owners and but sponsors. Okay. They take a stand, that will set that will that will move the needle, and so, you know, what he did. Uh, I think it's it's like I forget which Olympics it was, but you know, the two U.S. Olympic athletes, black Olympic athletes, who raised their fists. I think it was in Mexico City in '68. Um, again, a very powerful gesture that will resonate through history, I believe.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: That was uh, really yeah.
1: No, I was Go just gonna ahead. follow up on that and just and talk about it in the sense that, you know, what and Rosa, you did talk about this already a little bit in the sense of having more diversity on, in governing structures. But how do leagues, associations, uh, minor leagues, or minor uh, associations for young people uh, really, you know, sort of move from that more performative sort of aspect? Because as, as I think you guys mentioned as well, when when the incidents happened in the AHL and the East Coast Hockey League, you know, there was lots of uh, you know words being you know put out there that we don't agree with this and all that. But when, you know, what, what, what can we do to move from performative sort of things where we, you know, do certain actions to actual change where, you know, that, that we see the barriers are actually broken down?
2: I feel like you have to incentivize um, these leagues and these organizations. Uh, um, And, you know, uh, most of the uh, amateur sport leagues are funded, all of them in Canada are funded by the government. So um, they can uh, play a fairly large role in that by showing that they're on the forefront of this and they and they are diverse, they include... And it doesn't mean that just because... I'm just going to guess here. I don't know. Um, lacrosse is maybe, you know, a particular sport. Let's just say a particular sport has predominantly white kids on the team. That doesn't mean that there's an issue with that sport, that organization, that team. Not at all. It's not as if you have to insert, you know, people of color on the team in order to make it more palatable and in order to bring it up to speed with <laughs> the the current um, uh, racial standards. Not at all. It's about, it's about the spirit of sport, the spirit of competition, the spirit of team, the spirit of humanity needs to live in all of these organizations. So that when an individual, a coach, a teammate, or um, a, a fan, or um, a, an athlete makes some sort of gesture that, that, it, that, that aims to humiliate, uh, diminish, exclude an individual everybody goes no, nope, not here that's it. that's it and and so it has to be it has to be known like you know maybe every team we start with the amateur teams here we have we're on the cusp of the Olympic Games about to start in just about a week and you've got these incredible athletes who represent these sports um, and they're all uh, part of these govern these sport teams that are part of the amateur, sport of Canada, they could all have um, in their statement, we do not discriminate. We we welcome everyone. And it could be such a bold statement that it's very difficult to have an individual on the team to make certain racial gestures and then say, what? I don't I, know. I, I didn't know. That's fine. I didn't mean that. I mean, it should be just such a bold statement. And I think that you can start with the amateur athletic teams because they do hold some power, especially around this time of the year when you got the Olympic Games. And then um, and then you encourage um the pro teams um as well to put that out there, to talk about it, to have a disc to have discourse. And and again, it's not pitting one race against another. It's pitting horrendous behavior and putting and shining a spotlight on it and going, we don't do that. We are of this. We are so, we are so um, pro humanity that you can't. This can't live in the light of day, and so it just it just falls to the wayside. That kind of behavior. Um, so I think that yeah, you you would you could start with the with the amateur sport leagues and have them put um, a disclaimer, and it's very bold. And um, because a lot of times people go ah, you know, eh, racism. that's not really an issue. We're not racist. Why should we even bother to talk about it? Well, it's clear that we do still need to talk about it, um, you know, um, until people uh, realize that, again, like I say, it diminishes, it excludes, it's emotionally taxing. It is wrong and it should not exist because really we, when you're, <laughs> you're competing in a sport, it's all about the sport. It's all about getting on that field and giving it 100. It's not about whether or not I wear a hijab or I have dreads or I have braids. It's about that sport. It's about giving it that effort. That's what really matters. That's what you know and that's what you remember and that's what we should be promoting. And so, yeah, we start at the amateur sport level. We get and we and we really have to um, engage these these owners and say, you guys got to do better from the top. We need the the owners out there speaking it. And it might seem performative at first. Oh, well, here goes another billionaire talking about race. But you know what? You don't see them enough. You don't hear from them enough. So get them out there talking about it.
1: Now, I know we're we're running out of time, Senator. Um, and I just wanted to just you know, I think it's a very good idea to maybe have a few questions to the government about what they're doing. Uh, you know, the Minister of Sport to be able to say, what are you doing here? You know, there's you know, and are you willing to attach certain things to funding to different organizations that you know that that need to to work on anti-racism and and diversity in in those areas? So, uh, Senator, I'll, I'll I'll go over to you.
0: No, I think that's a very important question. I'd like to hear an answer to that. What should the
3: government do?
1: Hmm. Well,
3: that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I sound cynical, but I usually, to me, I never look to the government as the first solution. <laughs> to <problem. laughs> because, Maybe because I live in Ottawa, I don't know, but... Um, I think, I mean, you know, the government can do its part, but it it really gets down to the grassroots, right, and, you know, your local community associations and what, you know, what values within communities. Um, I think, I think programs that are at at the grassroots level are, that's where things will change. Um, And, uh, you know, Yes, we need the big leagues to, because they do set the examples for all the, the little kids and their parents, you know, what's appropriate and what's not. Um, but as, as far as government goes, uh, I, I'm not familiar with with government programs or whatnot, but, per, yeah, perhaps you can, you should put some kind of conditions when it does come to funding. I, I don't mean quotas, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about, but some kind of mission statement or, or uh you know, uh, understanding of of the spirit, as Rosie had mentioned, of what sports is all about. The problem I found with sports is not the sport itself. It's all the stuff off the field, usually. It's all the stuff outside when you're not actually engaging in the sport. You know, it's, uh, you know, you talk about team versus individual. I think one of the biggest problems is, is locker rooms, what goes on in the locker rooms. There's a Go lot ahead. of stuff, a lot it's of stuff that's locker. said, exchanged you know, and it's supposed to be off limits, right? But a lot of attitudes and whatever are are formed, expressed, approved, which you could never do out in public, but it's such a a core part of that team. So I find that a bit of a contradiction, (laughs) to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yes, this has
0: been absolutely wonderful and we are coming close to the end. And I'm going to channel my inner Ted Lasso and look for uh hope and if you know not humor but at least hope so i'm taking away a few things from here what i've heard you both say start early start with amateur sports start with kids and their parents and make sure that they have the right way of thinking about sports and team and appropriate behavior change the lead second change the leadership at the top so that those who are making the decisions about rules and procedures understand the impact of their decision. And, and if they come from an experience of, uh, of being racialized, they will have another response to proposals that are put forward. I heard Shima say, look for best practices. I mean, Gary Batman should look at what the National Basketball League is doing. So maybe we need to, you know, the sports the uh, world itself needs to develop a series of of uh, of of uh, templates on best practices that are being followed all over the world. And fourth, very importantly, is follow the money: the owners, the fans, the sponsors, and the government. So I think this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. Thank you, Shima and Rosie. Thank you to our listeners. And if you have any questions or suggestions for topics or even speakers, do write to me on Twitter or to my Senate email. I promise we will get back to you and we would love to hear from you. Thank you so, so much.
2: Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank
3: you for the opportunity.